Mexico Health Commission meeting of Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. As you may notice, this is our first fully in-person meeting just over three years after our last fully in-person meeting, which I believe was on March 3rd, 2020. So welcome commissioners, welcome staff. It's very good to see all of you again in person. Uh, before we proceed, I'd like to go over um, some changes in how we'll be conducting the commission meetings today and moving forward, perhaps with some future adjustments. Um, we'll be implementing several changes to our meetings that are based on requirements set forth by the city attorney and the office of the city administrator for all city charter policy bodies. The following is a summary of these changes, much of which was included in the meeting agenda. All health commissioners are required to attend meetings in person at any health commission meeting, including committees, in order to be counted as present and take part in any action. Next, all health commission meetings, including again committees, will include options for remote public comment. The health commission decided to go beyond the minimum requirements and offer visual and audio of each commission meeting, including committees, in an effort to ensure the public can participate. SFGovTV will continue to live stream full health commission meetings in addition to the meetings being viewable via the WebEx platform. Thank you again to SFGovTV. Health commission me committee meetings will also stream on WebEx with the assistance of a portable audio visual system that can be taken to each site in which health commission's meetings are held. Next, the requirement communicated from the office of the city administrator and city attorney changes changes policy body public comment procedures, which, are, which will be as follows. Public comment for each item will be first heard from those individuals attending the meeting in person. Each individual will continue to be given up to three minutes to comment. There is no time limit on the amount of time, total in-person public comment. Um, again, that's in person. Next, uh, the commission will receive remote public comment on each item from individuals who have contacted the health commission secretary no later than two hours before each meeting to request accommodation for a disability. Each individual will continue to be given up to three minutes for their comments. And again, there is no limit on the amount of total remote public comment from individuals who have received accommodation for a disability. And third, remote public comment will be taken on each item from all other individuals. The new requirements limit the amount of remote public comment from individuals who have not received an accommodation for a disability. The Health Commission has chosen to accept the recommendation of 20 minutes contained in the guidance from the Office of the City Administrator. This means there will be a 20 minute limit on remote public comment taken on each item from individuals who have not received accommodation for a disability. These new requirements do not give individual policies authority to mandate masks at meetings. Therefore, the Health Commission encourages individuals attending meetings in person to wear masks as you'll see all of the commissioners are masked as well. And finally, um, WebEx has discontinued the platform we previously used for our remote meetings. The city has mandated that we use a new WebEx platform. There are some minor changes on how members of the public are unmuted for public comment, and our commission secretary, Mark Morowitz, will walk everyone through the new procedures during each item. So I hope that was all very clear. We're happy to repeat them over the course of the meeting. Um, if anything needs clarification, I'd like to hand it over to Secretary Morowitz. I have a, a quick addendum. Due to the changes in our remote public comment process, please do not raise your hand to make remote public comment on, on an item until your category is called. This is a change from uh, practice. 
the order of remote public comment will be first those who have received accommodations for a disability and then everyone else. Again, please do not raise your hand for any item until your category is called. Thanks. Great. All right. And uh, Secretary Morris, we will call the meeting to order. Yes. And I will call the roll. I'll start with you, Commissioner Paul. Present. Commissioner Green. Present. Commissioner Dorado. Present. Commissioner Chow. Present. Commissioner Chung. Present. And Commissioner Guillermo. Present. Thank you, Secretary Morowitz. I'd like to hand it over to Commissioner Suzanne Gerardo to offer the Ramaytush Ohlone Land Acknowledgement. Thank you. The San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you, Commissioner Gerardo. The next item on our agenda is general public comment. Back to Secretary Morowitz. All right. One second to get to my script. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that, were, that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission but are not on this meeting agenda. Each commission, uh, sorry, each member of the public may address the commission for up to two minutes. The Brown Act forbids a commission from taking action or discussing any item not appearing on the posted agenda, including those raised during public comment. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the Health Commission at the following email address, health, the word health.commission.dph at sfdph.org. If you wish to spell your name in the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. We will first take public comment from individuals attending the meeting in person. We will then take remote public comment from in individuals who have received an accommodation for disability. Prior to the meeting, I only um, gave accommodation for one person for a disability, just uh, FYI. I have been, uh, I've given each of these individuals a code to speak when they begin their comments to prevent others from speaking during this time. Finally, we will hear remote public comment from all other individuals. There will be a time limit of 20 minutes on the total amount of remote public comment that can be heard on each item um, uh, uh, beyond uh, public comment, uh, general public comment. Because of the two-tiered remote public comment procedure, please do not raise your hand to make remote public comment on item until your category is called. Uh, the new WebEx platform requires that members of the public unmute themselves. When I call on you to make comment, you will be prompted to unmute yourself by pressing star six. All right, let's start with um, in the room. Is anyone here to make public comment? Great. Yes, we can. Thank you. All right. Hello, commissioners. Thank you. Hello, commissioners. Jessica Lehman with Senior and Disability Action. I'm going to try to squeeze in three items in these three minutes. 
The first is that I really came because everyone at our organization is very upset about the decision to no longer require masking in healthcare facilities and homeless shelters. We are really shocked by this. Seniors and people with disabilities have been hit the hardest by the COVID pandemic, as you know. I have lost so many friends and other people and our communities are always disregarded, right? We've talked about the headlines that said, oh, it only seems to be older people and people with health conditions that are dying, right? As if that was, that was okay and that could make everyone else feel better. And now here we are again with people desperate to go back to the way things were before the pandemic, except for people in our communities, people who are disabled, people who are at high risk of either getting COVID because they're immunocompromised or who are gonna have severe consequences if we do get it. For many of us, that's untested. There is not research on what will happen. So it becomes very dangerous then for us to go and seek medical care in a healthcare facility when we know we have to be around other people who may have COVID who are unmasked. This is not okay. And we will see the same thing we saw at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, which is people then make the rational choice not to seek care, certainly not preventative care, sometimes even necessary care because of the risk of COVID. Please reverse this decision and keep requiring masking. The other two things I wanna say is I know a lot of people are outraged on this issue and people were also very frustrated to hear that there is now a limit on public comment. Just two hours ago, the Board of Supervisors made a decision. 10 out of 11 supervisors voted to keep remote public comment open and unlimited. As the Commission Secretary was saying, what you have is a two-tiered system. As a disabled person my whole life, I am so tired of being put in a separate category. Today, just to get into this building, I had to find the accessible entrance, come up the ramp, and the door at the top of the ramp was locked and the power button was out of order. I had to call the number on the door and wait to come inside to the meeting. And you know, many of you I'm sure have also dealt with this, right? People deal with it with any number of reasons of being marginalized. We do not need to add another to say disabled people have your own category. And then you have to disclose as disabled. Some people don't internally identify as disabled because of the intense stigma, right? And then you've said that the first people who speak, we're gonna know are gonna be disabled. So we're required to announce it to the world. For everyone else who has valid reasons for remote comment, maybe they're taking care of a child at home or an older person, they should also be able to share their views. Your, your Thank time you. Is, up. is there any other remote public comment? I'm sorry, any other public comment of people in the room? So folks on the line, um, if you, if the one person who received accommodation from me would like to raise their hand, um, I see two hands. So the person who did not receive accommodation, please put your hand down. Um, the person who did receive accommodation has a code that I will hopefully hear from that person when they unmute themselves. Please press star three to unmute your, uh, uh, star six to unmute yourself. And then call or let us know that you're there. Hi, can I speak now? Uh, excuse me, sir. You were not given an accommodation for a disability, so uh, no, certainly not. No, no. Okay, I'm, so, it's a new system, so okay. I'm okay. So please meet yourself. Great. All right, um, person who I've just requested to meet yourself, please press star six to do so. 
Okay, so uh, currently, just one person with their hand up again. Uh, please press star six if you are the. So it seems like the person who received accommodation is not raising their hand. So now we can move to general uh, remote public comment. So anybody who's remote, you can uh, raise your hand. I'll start a timer for 20 minutes. At the end of 20 minutes, um, whoever is speaking will be allowed to finish their comments. Okay. All right, caller, please unmute yourself by pressing star six and then let us know you're there. Yes, uh, ZZ. Um, yes, so I am um, I'm disabled. I requested remote com um, uh, uh, access in advance, and I really don't like that I had to do that for the reasons that were just given. A separate reasonable accommodation process is bad for disabled people and bad for non-disabled people. I don't like being put in a separate category either, and as it was pointed out, everyone here, like everyone has a right to speak. Maybe there are people who have to bust down City Hall and cannot do so, or they may not want to risk getting COVID. I do not approve of this two-tiered system, and um, I just don't think that less democracy is better than more. Um, that's something I'd expect to see from someone like Mitch McConnell, not something I'd expect to see here in San Francisco. So I really hope that you go back to the original method of allowing everyone access to remote comment equally. Um, and I don't like that I had to, to identify as disabled, um, but this is important. I, I did it anyway, but it's it's really terrible to have to make people do that. Um, my name's Elizabeth. I We need to keep the universal masking requirement in healthcare. If this is not an ADA violation, it should be one. You're, you're terminating safe access to healthcare. Um, I don't know what the plan is to provide access to healthcare for disabled people. Multiple show, studies show that one-way masking only goes so far. I'm immunocompromised, six months out from my violent booster, no longer protected by Evisheld. What are the safety precautions for high-risk people like me? What about environments where patients can't reasonably mask? Can we sue hospitals if, we, if staff give us COVID while we're, we're there for a broken leg? Um, it's just, it's we really have to keep healthcare facilities safe for everyone to access and homeless shelters. Um, this is not a decision based in science. Reverse this immediately and bring back the universal mask requirement in healthcare and homeless shelters. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, and now we can move, move on to other remote public comment. Each of you have three minutes up to 20 minutes in total. Please press star uh, six to unmute yourself. Caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. All right, please begin. You've got three minutes. Okay. All right, thank you. I'll start. Um, my name is Doug Young, and I'm a San Francisco native, current resident, calling in to strongly disagree, disagree with the latest orders of the health officer that requires mandatory masking and COVID vaccination for personnel in healthcare and jail settings that just happened last week. This order goes directly against the new California state order which was reported by the LA Times on March 3rd, that is ending mask requirements in healthcare and other high-risk indoor settings, including correctional facilities, starting on April 3rd. Now, in terms of masking, the Cochrane Review that was just recently published, a meta-study covering 78 randomized control trials, the gold standard of scientific research over the last few decades, including 11 during the COVID era, showed that masks did not stop respiratory illnesses. They do not work. This was just an update from an earlier review that they published in late 2020, and came to the, which came to the same conclusions. Also, um, even though this order recognizes the best COVID-19 uh, COVID reason for 
vaccination is to protect against severe disease, not stopping transmission or infection. Um, you, if you are ordering this for people for their own good, why don't you just ban smoking and junk foods for these employees who are going to be affected by this? Um, I want to quote uh, a journalist who used to write for the uh, New York Times named Alex Berenson. He said, don't think of this as a vaccine. Think of it at best as a therapeutic with a limited window of efficacy and a terrible side effect profile that must be dosed in advance of illness. And we want to mandate it? That's insanity. So I'm just saying that the evidence and the science is moving forward. We're finally figuring things out. And we're taking steps backward in San Francisco when even the state of California is moving ahead. Masks don't work. The COVID vaccines do not stop transmission. Thank you. Thank you. All right, next caller. I'm going to put in a request to unmute yourself. Please do so by pressing star six. All right, I see only one hand at this point. Caller, unmute yourself. So there's a system change uh, in this new system. You all have to meet yourselves by pressing star six after you, there we all go. Right. Can you hear? Yes, I Am can. I the yes. one that's next? Yeah, this is Dr. Teresa Palmer. I um, totally support um, the others who have spoken in support of masking in medical places. Um, I'm immunosuppressed and elderly, and um, this is, um, this is uh, threatening my existence and my ability to get medical care. I also would like to protest the uh, disability, the, re the remote comment rule that you've made. Um, why does the public, why do I have to call Mark Morowitz and beg to speak because I'm an immunosuppressed caregiver? Uh, this is discrimination against me. I have a right to give public comment in a way that's safe for me. I urge you to follow the example of the Board of Supervisors and not have limits on remote comment. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Next caller, please unmute yourself. A caller, please let us know you're there. I am, can you hear me, District yes. Patrick Manette? Yes, uh, and you've got three minutes. For me? Yes, Mr. Manetshaw, go. I want my full three minutes. This testimony is not about the Laguna Honda rebuild. Do not interrupt me, Mr. Moritz. Laguna Honda's action plan is shockingly full of basic problems in every department. It has a damning admission, the MDS system, MDS coordinators, MDS department aren't doing their jobs with comprehensive care plans and quality of care. The MDS is mandated by CMS for every SNP. One of the 21 milestones around the MDS problems is to create a, quote, charter to establish a new, quote, resident care conference, end quote, a step above the IDT structure. The charter and revised MDS policy must be approved by March 14th, 
ostensibly at your next JCC meeting because it involves a new policy. That policy must be scheduled for the JCC's agenda next week. It's sad MDS care plan, care plan training materials need to be developed with topics including nurse, leader, roles, individual of the care plan process, including updates based on changes in patients' conditions and how to complete MDS sections. It's shocking. LHS's nursing department is so dysfunctional. It now needs its own RCC, quote, oversight committee. This is ridiculous. Thank you. Okay, we've got one more hand. Caller, please unmute yourself by pressing star six. And let us know that you're there. Caller, you're unmuted. Please let us know you're there. I'll try one more time. Caller, are you there? Okay, I'll do my best. All right. One more uh, person, press star six to unmute yourself. Please press star six to unmute yourself, caller. Yeah, this is Patrick again. This new star six. Oh, don't need to hear you, Mr. Monetshaw. We already heard from you. Okay, the last person I think has her hand up. Please press star six. And caller, you're muted. Please let us know that you're there. This is Patrick again. Okay. All right, so the system's kind of wacky. Okay, that's, I think that's all the public comment, commissioners, for general public comment. All right, thank you, Secretary Morowitz. Our next item is approval of the minutes of the Health Commission meeting of February 21st, 2023. Uh, commissioners, you have the minutes before you. Um, upon review, if there are no amendments, do you have a motion to approve? Motion to approve. I'll second. second. All right. All right. We'll check with public, public comment. comment? Uh, folks on the line, if you'd like to make public, actually, is there anyone in the room who would like to make public comment on the minutes? All right. Anyone online would like to make public comment on the minutes? Please press star three. All right. There's one hand. Caller, press star six to unmute yourself. You have your hand up. Hi, um, this system just isn't working very well. I didn't even have my hand up. It's, it's a really messed up system. And why don't, just go back to the old way. This is ridiculous. Okay, thank you so and much. That's uh, not possible, uh, Ms. Dr. Palmer. This new system is all that exists. The old system doesn't exist anymore. So commissioners know um, there is no uh, more public comment. And Commissioner Chung pointed out that I no longer do a, remote, a, a roll call vote. You all do the old way where you do eyes and nays. Okay. There you go. So, any commissioner comments or questions? Otherwise, we'll go to a vote. All right. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? All right. The minutes are approved. Thank you for that reminder, Secretary Morowitz. Our next item is the director's report. We have Dr. Grant Colfax, Director of Health. Hello. Is this on? Yeah. You can hear me? Okay. Good. 
as close as I can. Okay. Good afternoon, commissioners, members of the public. Uh, welcome back, commissioners, to in-person meeting. Welcome back to you as well. Um, a number of things to cover in the director's report that uh, to highlight I will summarize and then happy to answer any questions. Um, first item is San Francisco COVID health orders were rescinded and issued to align and new orders were issued to align with the end of local state and public health emergencies. The COVID-19 local public health order health emergency ended on February 28th, along with several health orders, including health order the safer return together. State masking requirements will continue to supersede local health orders if the state is more restrictive. The health officer issued two new orders that affect hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, and other healthcare and jail settings in the event that the state rescinds their current health order or makes them less restrictive. Under the first order, staff in the above reference settings are still required to wear a mask when interacting with patients, clients, or people who are incarcerated. Masking requirements for the general public in these set settings will end. In addition, masking requirements in homeless shelters for both the general public and staff will end. Those who operate these facilities can decide to be more restrictive than local health guidelines and may still implement their own requirements. DPH will be monitoring the ongoing national discussion about COVID-19 vaccination schedules and will reevaluate local vaccination requirements once federal and state recommendations are made. And just to note that our health officer, Dr. Susan Phillip, is present here uh, to answer any questions the commissioners may have on this specific item. Item number two, legislation to allow privately funded overdose prevention sites uh, to open were, was approved by the Board of Supervisors. The Board of Supervisors unanimously approved legislation introduced by Mayor London Breed and Supervisor Hillary Ronan that opens the door for nonprofits to operate drug overdose prevention sites in San Francisco with, with private funding. The, vo the vote removes a recently identified barrier to moving forward with a non-city funded overdose prevention program while the city waits for federal guidance on whether it can fund such programs with public dollars. While federal and state legal issues on publicly funded overdose site prevention sites in San Francisco are yet to be resolved, the city has continued conversations with leading nonprofits around opening a privately funded site. As part of this process, the city identified a significant issue to be addressed for a privately funded site to move forward. To address this issue, Mayor Breed and Supervisor Ronan introduced legislation last, last month to repeal the 2020 permitting structure. The mayor asked President Peskin to expedite the ordinance so the city could adopt as soon as possible. And basically the law as written did not allow for any overdose prevention program to open until the state authorized the city to do so, whether it's funded by the city or by private resources. And this uh, change to the law now allows private resources to be used to open an overdose prevention site in San Francisco um, without, without the state uh, making, uh, uh, making the taking the action that it was previously required to do so. Item number three, Mayor Breed joined state leaders in support of legislation for statewide conservatorship reform. Mayor London Breed uh, joined State Senator Susan Talmates Eggman and leaders from across California to highlight the need for statewide conservatorship reform and support newly introduced mental health bills, including Senate bills 43 and 363. Mayor Breed is co-sponsoring the bills as part of the Big City Mayor's Coalition. The bills would modernize the state's behavioral health system and advance support for those most in need. If passed into law, these SB 43 and SB 363 would greatly support improvements to San Francisco's conservatorship program and create efficiencies in the day-to-day work of practitioners. This is the latest effort to reform California's conservator 
ship law supported by Mayor Breed. The mayor and state leaders were also joined by representatives from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, California, the California State Association of Psychiatrists, and the Psychiatric Physicians Alliance of California. And you can, there's a link to the press conference if you would like to see that at the bottom of this item. Next item is ZFFG's Ortho Trauma Institute celebrates its 16th anniversary. On February 24th, the Ortho Trauma Institute OTI at ZSFG celebrated this anniversary. Um, their commitment to clinical care, education, and research and outreach activities have changed the lives of many for the better throughout the greater uh, Bay Area. And it's just one of our flagship programs at Zuckerberg San Francisco Hospital that really not only provides direct and incredibly good cl cl clinical care, but is also recognized as a clinical research model uh, nationwide. Uh, next item is the very important 2023 Employment Engagement, Engagement Survey, which is open through March 22nd. We've begun our 2023 survey. The survey will ask questions related to GPH staff workplace experiences, including racial equity, management, burnout, safety, organizational support, and other employee, employee engagement uh, indicators. Our hope is that 70% uh, of, 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 of employees will answer this survey. And it is the first survey that's been done since we've gone through the very challenging aspects of the pandemic. So really important to get input to better understand how we can support our incredible workers. And then uh, one item that is not on the director's report before I get to the COVID update, I just wanted to let uh, the commissioners know um, we recently, we, we with regard to Laguna Honda, um, we are very honored um, to have uh, Secretary of HHS, HHS Health, Health and Human Secretary uh, uh, Becerra visit uh, Laguna Honda. Uh, we could go last Friday, accompanied by uh, Mayor Breed um, and our city attorney and uh, Roland Pickens, the CEO of Laguna Honda Hospital. Uh, the secretary uh, came to visit at, at, at our invitation and uh, he toured the facility. Uh, talked with staff and, and, and with employees and, and with residents, uh, visited uh, one of our wonderful neighborhoods um, and really uh, uh, asked a lot of questions about the incredible work that's going on there with regard to our quality improvement as we move forward towards uh, recertification. And I obviously can't speak for the secretary, but I can say um, the staff were very inspired uh, to be able to show off the great work that is that is that is being uh, done there and uh, very much appreciated the mayor um, um, sharing her experiences and supporting uh, the team as well. And uh, Roland Pickens uh, provided uh, lots of details and, and, and information in response to both the secretary um, and the mayor's uh, questions. And we had a number of really wonderful staff who were very um, uh, excited and, and helpful in sharing with the secretary uh, the quality improvement boards, the dashboards uh, that they support and look at every day. And then of course, talking to the residents, um, the residents uh, told the secretary and the mayor um, how much they appreciated being in Laguna Honda and, and, and living there. So it was a, a really appreciative of, of the secretary for, for coming here and, and making that visit. And then in terms of our COVID-19 update, as of March 1st, the San Francisco seven day rolling average of COVID new cases per day is 94 and 86 people are hospitalized, including seven uh, in the intensive care unit. 
86% of all San Francisco, Francisco residents have been vaccinated and 65% have received a booster dose. And then um, I do believe one of, I believe Commissioner Chow, you had asked for us to include the, the bivalent booster rate uh, in this report. In the most recent data I have there, a total of 38% of San Franciscans have received a bivalent booster. And again, that is higher among people who are higher risk, including those who are 55 and over. Um, we are seeing a slight increase in our, our COVID-19 cases. Hospitalizations have been averaging around between 80 and 90, but certainly compared to where we were three years ago with all the unknowns, uh, we are in a much better place uh, today. And that reflects, uh, that is reflected in all of you being here today um, and in other parts of this report, including the health order revisions. Thank you, I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Director Colfax. Before we go to Commissioner comments or questions, do we have public comment on the Director's report? All right, is there any public comment in the room on this item? Okay, um, folks on the line, is there uh, any public comment from the person who uh, received a accommodation for disability? Please raise your hand. I see two hands, only one of those people received the accommodation. Just checking, I guess we'll do both. Caller, please unmute yourself by pressing star six. Um, hi, uh, this is uh, Dr. Palmer. Um, I uh, would like to know um, what's going on with getting the 120 uh, beds at Laguna Honda that are threatened with um, closure um, grandfathered in. Um, apparently, um, Mr. Becerra can give a waiver if the county assertively asks for it. Um, Roland Pickens did say this was possible. Um, if I am interpreting his words correctly in the January 31st Board of Supervisors meeting and we have not heard anything about it. Um, I would like to know that um, the needs of the people of San Francisco are being honored given the extreme uh, shortage of Medi-Cal nursing home beds with every effort being made to save those 120 beds for public use. Thank you. All right, next caller, please unmute yourself by pressing star three. I'm sorry, star six. Mark, can you hear me? Yes, Mr. Manetshaw. Okay, you guys screwed up on the meeting minutes agenda item. I had my hand raised. This is raised. the director's report, Mr. Manetchal. You can speak to this item. I, I had my hand raised and you didn't. <laughs> okay, um, I had my hand up and you didn't call on me, Mark, because of this goofy system. Here's my testimony regarding the meeting minutes that Mark didn't call on. Okay, so that's the last of the public comment for this item. All right, commissioners, any comments or questions for the director on the director's report? Uh, Commissioner Chow. Uh, yes, I would appreciate it if uh, Dr. Susan uh, Phillip might be able to discuss uh, what the Department of Public Health facilities are going to be doing in terms of the issue of masking and vaccinations. Please speak very closely to the microphone, Dr. Phillip. I will, thank you. Um, and, and good afternoon, commissioners. It's really lovely to, to see all of you. 
Um, Commissioner Chow, thank you very much for the question. Um, as you as you know, the, the, the policy of each health system, including our very own San Francisco Health Network, is determined by that health system, is separate from the health officer orders, uh, only in that we set, as the health, of, the health officer orders, we set the floor uh, in the local and the state orders, but any health system can go beyond that. So I'm speaking now just in my capacity with, with listening to colleagues, not because I've decided this. I understand, and uh, other colleagues here may be able to expand on this, that uh, in our medical facilities, uh, for the time being, staff and visitors, everyone in those facilities will be required to, uh, to mask. And uh, is there a change in the uh, need for vaccinations in the uh, uh, department or in the city? Um, and again, similarly, the, the city requirement, the city and county of San Francisco requirement through our uh, Department of Human Resources is entirely separate from uh, health officer uh, requirements. They, they do intersect in, in certain of our settings, such as Laguna Honda and, uh, and, and ZSFG, but, um, but they're not entirely the same. So in terms of the health officer orders, um, as of now, we are keeping our, uh, our, our current requirements in place under the health officer orders, requires uh, completion of a primary series and at least one booster. And what we're uh, keeping that in place to do is to be able to understand in the coming weeks the uh, requirements and the guidance that may be coming from our federal agencies, such as FDA and CDC, and the California Department of Public Health. At that time, we will reevaluate our local orders and, uh, and, and make any adjustments that are needed based on any changing recommendations for uh, repeated boosters, annual boosters, those types of things. So we're waiting to get more of that information before making any adjustments. Thank you. And, and uh, finally, uh, uh, and this would be in your role as the health officer, uh, what do you believe is the logic that the state and yourself have, as health officer have decided that the general public need not have a masking even when they go into healthcare facilities. Uh, I, I think it's very clear from what you're saying that our, all of our healthcare facilities in San Francisco and offices and all can certainly go beyond and uh, have different mandates just as we have had for uh, our San Francisco health plan. Uh, uh, health system, but uh, if you could explain, uh, if that's possible, the logic that the state is now saying and the city is following, uh, except that within our own facilities, we said that isn't going to happen, that, that uh, members of the public visiting in health facilities do not need to have masks, uh, do not need to have a masking. Yes, I, I, I won't presume to speak for the state health officer and the discussions that have happened there, but I will um, speak to, to, to my way of thinking about it and the expert um, input that, that we've been getting as we make these decisions. Um, as, as Director Colfax said, we are fortunately at such a different time now, um, at three years in to this pandemic than we have been before. And again, and particularly in San Francisco with the amount of uh, of, of vaccination with the ability of people to utilize um, high quality masks if they, if they choose to. And knowing that masking requirements in general settings are, are no longer, um, are no longer uh, common or no longer um, utilized, we really are moving to more of a, a phase of people being able to 
to choose uh, to use those masks, particularly members of the, the public. Now, uh, in the new orders, what I am recognizing is that we still do have um, a little more ways to go to understand what the vaccination requirements or recommendations might be for staff, what the seasonality of COVID uh, might be. It's SARS-CoV-2 virus. We don't know yet. Is this going to become a, a seasonal virus such as influenza? Um, and so I would like our staff to be able to continue masking at least in the, in the uh, short-term period to be able to understand those factors a little bit more and to present any, uh, and to prevent any sort of devastating outcomes of uh, transmission from staff to patients who are coming to seek care. So it is uh, allowing the public more flexibility and more options, but really focusing very narrowly on certain settings, healthcare and jail settings, and focusing more narrowly on preventing staff transmission to patients. And again, as we've always done, we'll keep reevaluating this as we uh, uh, get new information and as new guidance comes out from our federal and our state public health partners. Uh, thank you, Dr. Phillip, for uh, your uh, thoughtful uh, uh, discussion here. And we'll look forward to uh, future iterations of these uh, policies as they evolve. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Chow. Thank you, Commissioner Chow. Thank you, Dr. Phillip. Vice President Green. Thank you so much, Vice President Green, um, for, your, for your, your first comment about how do people know when they're going into different health settings um, what the rules are. Well, for now, the state order is still in place and will be until April 3rd, and that does still continue to require, um, require masking for, for the public and for staff. Um, but you're raising a good point. I, I don't know what the plans are. This really is becoming a little more uh, decentralized in, in that regard in, in terms of how health systems would like to notify the people coming onto their premises and, and their patients. Um, but I'll certainly keep eyes and ears open for, for how that might, uh, might proceed. Uh, but at this point, we are not planning to issue any uh, guidance or, or any... Um, uh, any constraints about how they how they choose uh, to do that. Um, 
your, uh, your, your question as well about, um, about one-way masking and uh, the, the benefits of that, I think, is a, is a really important one. You know, it's, it's challenging. Many times people draw, uh, draw the inferences or draw conclusions from very large studies, such as we heard from one caller. And it's, it's challenging because in those studies, we know that not everyone used the mask, even though they were randomized to, to a mask uh, use uh, group in those randomized controlled trials. And I think it is, um, it is, it is challenging to, to sift through all of this. So I'm, I'm not aware if there are national or larger body um, uh, collections of the, of the evidence. Um, as you said, we, we know that masks are helpful as healthcare providers. People are wearing them all the time for their own protection. It's um, one, of the, one of the standard ways in which people um, protect themselves um, in, those, in those higher risk occupations. Um, so I think it is a good point and we'll continue to look to see if there are accessible and clear um, ways in which we can disseminate that information uh, for people. Thank you. Thank you, Vice President Green, and thank you, Dr. Phillip. Um, commissioners, any other questions? Um, I did have a question. Uh, Director Colfax, regarding Laguna Honda, um, <clears throat> just wondering what the next steps might be in terms of the uh, recertification process. I know that in reading through various reports and other things that Laguna Honda is meeting all of the milestones that have been set forth to date. What, what are the next steps in terms of surveys and other things like that and interaction with CMS and CDPH? Roland Pickens is overseeing the recertification process at Laguna Honda. I do have, I can share some general information. Thank so you. just to reiterate, um, you recall that we have an action plan as part of the settlement agreement and there are certain milestones in that action plan that Laguna Honda is required, is required to meet. Um, so the good news is for January and February, there were a total of 259 milestones and we are on track to have met all of them. We still have our quality improvement uh, independent expert uh, determining that we've met a, a few of the, of the February milestones, confirming that we met them, uh, but it looks like we're, we're on track, so that's really good news. And now in March, um, there's a total of 77 milestones uh, for us to meet, so we're, we're continuing down that, that route as well uh, to make sure that we, that we are on track to, to meet those 77 milestones. I think the big, um, one of, well, there are many big things, but one of the key things that um, we, uh, we are prepared for um, every day is is surveyors coming uh, from from CMS as part of the settlement agreement surveyors are expected to come uh, on a regular cadence um, they also don't tell us when they are coming so uh, the team is is uh, is as prepared as we can be uh, for, for, for that visit uh, but I would expect again I don't know mm. um, but I would expect a visit um, sometime um, relatively relatively soon so we're kind of coming up on that interval. We are coming, said more eloquently than I did, exactly. Yes, okay, thank you, sir. All right, commissioners, any other questions or comments? All right, thank you, Dr. Colfax. We'll move on to our next item, which is the 2016 Public Health and Safety Bond Update. We have a multi-agency presentation today from Mr. Mark Primo, Mr. Terry Saltz, and Mr. Joe Chin, uh, the first two from DPH, and Mr. Chin from the Department of Public Works. Hello, Mr. Thank Primo. Uh, good afternoon, commissioners and uh, Director Koufax. Um, we ch changed the sequencing of, of the presentation and inserted, uh, which Alyssa has, uh, uh, most current cost indicators of what's going to happen and what's trending. 
that uh, Terry Saltz will talk about. Also, thanks, uh, Commissioners Chow, Gerardo, and Green for your advanced questions. Um, I'd like to just uh, kick it off with uh, Commissioner Green's question. Uh, so during the pandemic, it, there was a, a huge shift of subcontractors and contractors wanting to do less or perceived less risk uh, projects. And so they found themselves going into commercial and residential and away from sort of the hospital and the medical sectors. What we're seeing now is a slow return of some subcontractors. I, I think part of it is the uh, high tech reductions and the projects that have been canceled. So we're drawing more attention, which Joe and Terry will talk about, which is actually gonna be really good because if we can get three to five bidders, it keeps the cost down as opposed to what we were getting a year, year and a half ago, zero or one. So I'd like to, uh, Lissa, could you go to slide five? Okay, I'm gonna turn this over to Terry. So after slide five is gonna be this new graph that kind of gives you an idea of where uh, cost indicators are trending. Good afternoon, commissioners. Terry Saltz, Zuckerberg, Capital Planning. Good afternoon. That's hard to see. <laughs> um, so the, the uh, good thing I know it's on there. Um, <laughs> the, um, so that's the um, current look at the budget showing a deficit of um, um, a uncaptured deficit of 85 million. It actually totals up to, I think, 105, but we have additional funding that we have uh, supplemented the budget with. Um, thank you. Um, that we've supplemented the budget with uh, to reduce it to 85 million. And so that's what we're working with right now is the deficit. This is a number that will, um, will change over time as new information is, is gathered, um, as things that could change, change this number uh, include um, delay claims, um, uh, with cost overruns beyond our contingencies, um, uh, rescoping, reducing the scope of projects to reduce uh, costs, um, and how we package up new, new bids, can we reduce, reduce the numbers? So as each of those items happen for a particular project, we'll be updating this list and hopefully reducing that, uh, that deficit number. Um, in relationship to questions being um, asked by the commissioners, uh, Mr. Chow, you were asking um, about the um, the significant financial challenges for the Building Five project, and will there be changes in the uh, will there be changes in the scope of the project? Um, so, if we run into a situation where we have to change the scope, of course that, that will change the um, the outcome of the project, and it will have um, uh, um, and the financial financial challenge will drive that. So, um, and then the follow up question to to that uh, question was, um, is the master schedule reflecting that? All the ones that are known are reflected in the master schedule. The master schedule gets updated on a monthly basis. So um, uh, any, any decisions that may be made that impact schedule will be incorporated into that master schedule. Um, with the PES project, um, uh, I think uh, the, with the PES uh, um, project, there's a question if it will be completed in 
um, in August because it's showing 93% complete. So PES is a perfect example of where um, we thought that we had an opportunity to reduce delays during construction by doing an early demolition project. So the project's actually two separate projects. One is the demolition and one is the construction. The demolition has been permitted and it's about 93% complete and it should be complete by August. Um, the other project, the, the actual build of the PES, won't start until we have a permit. It's going through the permit process right now. The, um, the anticipated completion time of that project um, is late 2025 um, with uh, occupancy uh, in early 2026. The, and then there's a, a question from uh, um, Commissioner Garrado, um, what are the next steps of cost containment and risk management? Speak really closely, like really close to Speaking really closely. So what are the next steps if cost containment and risk management do not meet the, the, the goal? We, we don't move forward. Um, we have um, several projects um, that cannot move forward if the funding isn't in place. Uh, we can't jeopardize um, going in the contract with the contractor and then not having the funds to back us up. So there's a lot of work that we're doing to exploit as many supplemental funding sources as, as possible and that's what the chart is showing down below um, so for instance uh, um, uh, IT infrastructure is a perfect example of a project that we may have to rescope if the bidding environment doesn't provide us we've already gone through a whole series of VEs and reducing the scope and hopefully to, to align it with our budget uh, we, we are currently packaging it up and going out to bid if the bid comes in at a number that we can't support with our, our, our budget, we're going to have to rescope it again. Um, the, the Family Health Center and and uh, Specialties are two projects that we don't we haven't started yet, and we're waiting until the funding is secured before we move forward with it. So that's how we control the and contain the the, the cost overruns versus the scope. Um, I believe I, I've addressed. Let's see, I addressed, uh, um, yeah, I think that addresses all the questions from the commissioners. I do want to um, draw attention to the, um, um, do we have, uh, uh, Alyssa, do we have the uh, addenda document that can be put on the screen? I do, we do want to share with you this construction cost indicators. This is a um, late information that we entered in to provide you to give it a more rounded um, <clears throat> description of what the current environment and what we anticipate on the current uh, uh, <clears throat> bidding environment. I, I, actually, um, Mr. Saltz, uh, Alyssa, could you make it bigger and then uh, go down because it's difficult to see on the screen and the commissioners don't have a copy of that? Is that okay, Mr. Saltz? Sure. And if you could zoom into the top part. So this is data that has been gathered, or information that was gathered in the uh, uh, last quarter of 2022, which is used by, um, um, used to, to um, predict um, our future. So what it says is the construction cost indexes, indexes indicate that the increases experienced over the last two years are slowing. So we would think that would be good. Um, but um, with that slowing, um, there are some headwinds ahead of us. 
Um, we, we're seeing a slowdown in demand for design services. We're seeing material costs um, ranked as a major concern in 2023. Um, and even though the material costs are leveling off, um, there continues to be um, higher interest rates as well as uh, persistent elongated lead times and material shortages. The logistics of transporting materials is a problem. Cement uh, costs are, are going up. Construction faces a shortage of skilled trade workers. That's a real issue for us um, everywhere is uh, um, the labor force. Um, and then the labor gaps are affecting project timelines as well as how much work contractors and engineers can, can take on. Um, and as for workarounds, companies are asking workers to do more, put in higher bids, and are letting schedules run long. So while we see we're projecting a, a softening of the, the cost indicators, um, there's still these, these other troubling issues that are going to drive um, <coughs> um, the bidding environment. We do have, as I mentioned before, we do have the IT infrastructure project going out to rebid after rescoping it, and that'll be our first project that will actually see the impact of the, the bid environment. And so um, that's, expe that's expected to be uh, uh, completed uh, by late May, early June. So Mark, where are we on our presentation? Because you jumped me into slide five. Um, Melissa, please go to slide six. So these are the, the strategies that we've been employing that we've been talking about. Um, <coughs> these are, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but these are how the things that we're putting in, in these are tools that we're using to reduce the cost of projects. Um, um, so a lot of times we find out that the bids are coming in because the contractor receives a level of risk. And so we do a lot of communication and outreach to reduce the risk. And if we have to rescope the project to reduce this, the, uh, the, the, the perceived uh, risk, then we will, um, we will do that. Um, creating a larger trade partner uh, bidding pool. Um, Again, using IT infrastructure as, a, as an example, um, that the electrical component, the electrical contractor um, bid on that came in uh, very high, um, about three times more than we had estimated. Uh, so we rescoped it, and we're reaching out to, to more uh, subcontractors, uh, and we believe that we have a pool of in excess of three now, whereas before we only had one. So we, we do hope that that will have a, a um, uh, a reduced uh, cost benefit. Um, early demolition, so PES is an example of that where we went in, we did the early demolition because what we learned in our rehabilitation project is once we did the demolition, there was all this old infrastructure. We had very leaking, we had leaking waste pipes in the space that had to be addressed and that slowed down the project and that was the delay. So the hopes is that by doing the early demolition, we could identify hazardous materials and, and, and poor infrastructure and address that prior to construction so it does not turn into a delay. Um, value engineering, that's reducing the scope of the project. Um, and then again, hunting for uh, uh, alternative funding. Did you want to talk about alternative funding, Mark? Yeah. 
So you've seen some of the uh, sources of funds that we've been able to um, put towards the project. There are two new ones that uh, you did not hear about until now. And then under the last two bullets, last month we got uh, a state grant for $33.7 million, which focuses on behavioral health and psychiatric services for children and youth. So we're going to really study this grant, even though it's focused on a particular uh, health delivery, to see if there's infrastructure that can be also benefiting the 2016 program, like IT or plumbing or electrical. The one on the top is uh, a climate change related to extreme heat and cooling, which, uh, as you know, we are impacted by it. And there's only two, two states right now that have a, a program similar to the federal program, and that's California and Oregon. So we're actually tracking this. There's legislation going through Congress to amend the Stafford Act, which controls FEMA's eligibility and definitions to add extreme heat and cooling. So we're aggressively working with Carmen Chu, the city administrator's office, to uh, put a team together to try to get a grant towards uh, both campuses. Alyssa, can you go to slide seven, please? Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, commissioners. Joe Chen, uh, Public Works Program Manager. Uh, the next two slides will be focused on providing updates on the active projects in uh, both the Zuckerberg Building 5 component as well as for the community health centers. So the first slide on slide seven is just a uh, focus on uh, kind of seven projects that are in active construction. Uh, the first project, the rehab department phase three, uh, as you may recall, uh, we completed phase one and phase two uh, last year, uh, and now the uh, the main rehab department has relocated to the third floor, and that's currently in operation. We've also started the phase three project, which is kind of a follow-up to that, and that's kind of in the early stages of construction. Uh, the next six projects, I'm, I kind of grouped them together uh, just to show that that's under one construction contract, and that's primarily to uh, allow uh, better coordination among these uh, six projects uh, that there's a lot of intersections between various uh, for example seismic upgrade uh, clinical lab um, automatic track replacement there's a lot of scope that are interrelated so we uh, group them under one construction contract so that we can just work directly with one general contractor and and similar subcontractors so that the work can be better coordinated uh, so I, I won't go through all the projects but I'll just pick a few uh, for example, seismic upgrade uh, is currently 23% complete. Uh, it's one of those projects that um, just take a long time to to complete. It's roughly about 900 calendar days to complete the project. Uh, one of the reasons is because we are doing seismic work in all parts of the building. There's roughly about 206 locations that we're doing seismic upgrade, and we're just slowly, you know, um, going through each scope and finishing it and moving on to the next scope. So we're currently about 23% complete, uh, focused on whether it's column strengthening, uh, adding structural fiber wrap around columns to make them stronger, or you know making a, a column thicker, adding concrete to that. Uh, and also I think the biggest scope that we're doing that we're slowly working from the ground, from the basement up, is building a new seismic joint. That's gonna be at the end of the day from what currently is a five inch 
seismic joint to a 24 inch. So that's a pretty uh, substantial uh, undertaking that, that just takes time to kind of work from the bottom up. And other than that, um, I think PSED was a project we talked about, uh, Terry had mentioned earlier. This is a project that's uh, almost complete. We're in the early, it's an early demolition project. Um, you know, the successor to that project is actually not, the, the starting of the main project is not limited by completion of the early demo. It's actually driven by, you know, when we get the permit for the, the main project. So under the um, project in design, we are tracking uh, additional uh, back check from HCI during plan review, and we're expecting that project to be to be planned approved uh, third quarter of 2023. So once that's done, that allows the project to proceed with the the bidding, and then that will then drive when we can start the main project. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and then this is a, a pretty quick uh, summary of where we are currently with the community health centers. There are three main health centers that we were uh, undertaking as part of the 2016 Public Health and Safety Bond Program. Uh, they're all completed now, fully operationalized as of last year. Uh, Southeast Health Center was a, a brand new build out, 22,000 square feet health center. Uh, and then Castro Mission and Maxine Hall uh, were both existing clinics that were retrofitted uh, as part of the project. And, and those are all completed now. Um, and that concludes my part. And Mark, um, back to you on UCSF. So, uh, Elisa, the next uh, slide. So this is just a snapshot of the research building that's about 94, probably 95% uh, complete with the move-in between summer and fall of 2023. If you haven't had a chance to, to go through it, it's a beautiful building on the outside and on the inside. Uh, I think with that, if we can open it up for additional questions. Uh, Secretary Moritz, do you have any public comment on this item? Thank you, Mr. Primo. Uh, any public comment in the room for this item? Um, and any uh, public comment from somebody who's received an accommodation for disability, please raise your hand now. I see one hand. I'm going to ask if that person has a disability, has gotten an accommodation. Take your hand down. Great. Looks like there's no hands from that group. So now we can go to. Um, Anyone else from remote public comment? Please raise your hand by pressing star three. Again, I'll call public comment one more time from um, anyone from the remote group, press star three. All right, so I don't see any hands, commissioners. Commissioners, any questions or comments? All right, uh, commissioners had submitted a number of questions in advance, so thank you for addressing those in your presentation. All right. Thank you very much. We'll move on to our next item. Thanks, all. Which is overview of DPH contract monitoring. For this, we have Michelle Ruggles, DPH Business Office Director. Welcome, Ms. Ruggles. Hi, Commissioners. Uh, Greg Wagner, can you hear me? Yes, Mr. Wagner. I'm speaking closely enough. Just a couple of brief words before I turn it over to um, Michelle. Um, you all on the uh, commission know that the topic of contract monitoring has been kind of a consistent uh, conversation, um, and I think it always will be uh, because we're we're constantly evolving. Um, and it's a it's a big it's a lot of territory when you start talking about the all the aspects of how we 
uh, uh, work with and monitor our vendors. We're not going to hit all of that today, but we want to uh, uh, start. Um, uh, those of you on the Finance and Planning Committee know that a few months ago we had a, a large, a long, in-depth conversation uh, that was prompted by some of the issues at Baker uh, PRC, but also a lot of the other uh, uh, organizations that we work with that have been going through some really challenging times, pandemic, um, and the, the overall uh, environment. Um, and so this is in some ways kind of a follow-up uh, to that conversation. We took a lot of the thoughts and, and things that we talked about there and have been trying to feed it into the uh, department's work on uh, how we relate to our vendors. Um, I will say uh, that there is um, there are a lot of challenges, but I actually feel like we are at a moment where uh, we have a lot of momentum uh, happening in, the, in this area. Uh, and the business office, uh, Ms. Ruggles and her team have really been working on um, uh, analyzing and refining a lot of our processes. And I feel like we're um, really, really moving in a, a good direction where we'll have quicker uh, warning signs and flags, uh, quicker escalation and quicker intervention uh, when we identify problems through the process. And um, the, the other great thing is that the city controller's office and a lot of the city leadership are also engaged on this issue and DPH is actively uh, participating um, and, and Michelle and team have been thought leaders in that uh, process. Um, so I just wanted to set uh, that context that uh, we're not, we're not going to get to all the issues today, but um, I'm sure there will be more uh, conversation to come and we're looking forward to hearing the, the thoughts and feedback from the commission to advise us as we, um, as we try to plow forward. Turn it over to Michelle. Ms. Orgles. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm going to hope you're all right. Take off my mask. This kind of makes me nervous talking up here, and then that makes me hyperventilate. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, anyway, thank you. Um, commissioners, my name is Michelle Ruggles. I'm the director of the DPH business office and right now the acting director of the business office of contract compliance. And so today's presentation, today's presentation is going to focus on what the business office of contract compliance does. And I'm going to refer to that as BOCC for short. Um, and I'm going to reference some of the other efforts that are going on in the department because it's not just BOCC. And, and just in case you want to learn about that or just to give you information for future follow-up presentations. You know, when we were starting this, I was struggling a little bit with the purpose of this presentation. I mean, obviously the purpose is to provide you with an overview of the business office, how we do programmatic and performance and compliance and fiscal monitoring. And why is that? You know, I've brought a lot of contracts to the Health Commission, and you always ask really insightful questions. And I think a lot of it boils down to, is this a good contract? How do I know? Are they stable? Do, are they good performers? And we don't always have all the answers, but I think by sharing some of this basic information, it will help um, just to provide a baseline of, the, of what tools and what we are doing. And then the other purpose that I didn't write down is that every time something gets into the news, it's like a shocking headline. And if you know the details behind it, it's enraging. But I want you to know, and I want 
that DPH really is a model for program monitoring and a lot of the depart city process are following behind. So when you see these headlines, know that you should ask and hopefully through this you'll feel comfortable knowing that a lot of stuff is going on behind the scenes. All right, with that, we could go to slide, I guess it's one. Yeah, okay. Um, oh, actually we can skip that. I Basically, I just said what we're gonna cover today is performance and fiscal monitoring and then some new tools. So moving to this next slide, this is basically the, the primary, not everything, but the primary functions that the Business Office of Contract Compliance does, which is fiscal monitoring, annual program monitoring, and fiscal and compliance monitoring. The program monitoring, just to make a point, because it's, it's sort of a weird concept until it's pointed out, or it was to me anyway, they, we monitor programs, we're not monitoring the contracts. So we're monitoring the individual programs within contracts, but across the board. And so it's the fiscal and compliance monitoring that's done at the agency level. And so, um, it's funny, I can't even see that up there. The, um, okay, so we do those two things. And then there's also, I gave you a document that's labeled, um, what is it labeled? Go back to my note. next well doesn't look like Excel to you it looks like it's called DPH contract monitoring compliance and quality management functions and I gave you that document it shows you what other parts of the department are doing it looks like this it's that green colored um, document and I think some of it you'll find yeah that it's I think it's a good document to see what other things are going on in the department. And I know from some of the questions that you ask, like how do you do performance monitoring? Where's the system data rolled up to? And that isn't happening in BOCC, but it does speak in that document. Like for example, behavioral health services takes the performance objectives, rolls it up, posts it in a DPH website, and I'm sending you that link, by the way. and and shows you system-wide data. So anyway, I, I know some of what your questions are, so I wanted you to know where some of these, thing, these things are happening in the process. So, all right. Okay, next slide, please. Our monitoring goals and strategies really are to make sure that um, the information is shared and people are aware of it and so that's like increasing communication and making it easier for staff that need this information to get it all in one place. And to make sure that the findings, because a lot of work goes into finding the findings, actually inform changes in the contracts or allow system changes to um, address problems that have been identified. I'll talk about how we're doing that more intentionally through the new form that is part of the part two. But um, next slide, please. Okay, next slide. Okay, so this slide shows you, this. I'm talking now about the program monitoring piece. We monitor in cycles and we monitor in buckets that represent different parts of the department. And again, I'm focusing really on the nonprofit vendors today. Um, but we focus on, and then sometimes within a cycle, 
there's it's even broken out again by the funding um, and so that's who we are currently monitoring and then that coming soon box I think I <laughs> probably should have been labeled differently but what we're doing with the coming soon box is being more intentional about a new monitoring cycle or an additional monitoring cycle that represents these um, sections it's not to say that some of those the contracts within those sections aren't already being monitored but for example population behavioral health is a new box on the org chart and so some of their contracts are being monitored but it's a new box and where we want to reflect that and the same with whole person integrated care so that's what coming soon means is they'll be getting their own intentional cycle um, to rolled up to how their section branch whatever we're calling that particular place is doing so um, we're hoping to we're working with those programs now the leaders of those sections like an MCAH to define you know to make sure we have the comprehensive set of their contracts MCAH actually has exploded in the number of contracts it wasn't that long ago they had one and now there's maybe 20 so bringing that in designing the performance objectives with them so anyway so that's going to happen this year and then um, be monitored the year after so next slide please these are the components of how we do the annual program monitoring we have program performance deliverables compliance and client satisfaction the um, let's see so we monitor over 450 individual programs in in those four categories the compliance um, one of the questions so under perform program performance there are standardized objectives that go across the board so if you're like mental health outpatient everyone's gonna have the same objectives all the objectives get um, developed by their section and then get, they get posted to a website I've sent you through Mark, you'll get an email, a copy of an example of the whole performance objectives for one section. And then they get posted on a website. One of the reference, or a couple of the reference documents, actually slides 30 and 31, if you want more information about performance objectives, how they're developed, who's, who develops them, that's in there. And then, um, Compliance, the way compliance works is a program declaration of compliance is sent to the individual programs. It's very comprehensive and they, um, it, and it gets sent through DocuSign essentially. They sign that they've received it. When we do this, the monitoring though, we check, did you do X or do Y? And the monitoring is divided into um, on site some of the things did you post your HIPAA posters or an administrative binder where they collect all the things there's a lot of items there's a, some slides in there that show you that 51 items that are checked or plus um, okay so that yeah so I think that answers one of the questions that came up and then um, yeah so those are the four so next slide please the way that we monitor is either as a site visit or a desk audit you can see the components that are covered in the site visit 
during, because of COVID actually, and creativity to get work done, virtual site visits entered into the picture. So a virtual site visit and an on-site site visit now are the same variables, like the camera, here's my poster. A desk audit has slightly less um, items, but that's mostly what we do now is the site visit or the virtual audit. And I just wanted to also say that the staff, the BOCC um, compliance managers, do also not atypically go out and do technical assistance to bring a new program director up to speed on what the expectations are in addition to the regular monitoring. Okay, next slide, please. Uh, right now, the biggest change during the pandemic was nothing was on site. And the other um, change was how we were scoring or not scoring. And, and I'm gonna show that more in the next slide, but moving forward, we're going back to the scoring and back to site visits. Some will be virtual just based on staffing, but, but not desk audits. I have the next slide, please. This is an example just to explain visually um, what was the difference. And so during the pandemic, monitoring cycles, which would have covered fiscal year 1920 and fiscal year 2021, the scores weren't, there was no score assigned to the overall program. So that's the first line, like everything rolls up to a four. So that didn't happen. And then we didn't score the individual category. So you didn't get a roll up score for performance objectives. And the reason is there was so much chaos during COVID and programs had pivoted in what they were doing to support COVID response. So it didn't necessarily reflect what their objectives were and it just, so that didn't get scored, but down on the, the bottom level, we did go through and score all the performance objectives individually. Did they turn in their client satisfaction? Um, you know, we covered all of it so that there was a record of what was happening in the program. It just didn't get that high level score. Now everyone will be getting scores, um, category scores for 21, 22, because right now we're in, right, we're in 22, 23, but they're monitoring last year. The only exception is the um, community health education and promotion section of PhD. They aren't gonna have scores through this year because their programs remained pivoted and their staff to COVID response way into some through fiscal year 21-22. So that's just catching you up with what you may or may not see in the these reports. Next slide, please. All right, one more. So now this is the agency fiscal um, piece. And so um, what, what the we have an analyst in our office, and what he does, his name is Wasim Samara, he goes out and he does these categories. He assesses the fiscal health of the contracting agency, ensures the proper board governance, ensures proper invoice billing, ensures compliance with tax filings. To answer one of the questions that was provided to me earlier, the way that board governance is determined is when they go out, which I'll talk about on the site visit, they ask for three board minute meetings. One of them 
to demonstrate that they reviewed the audited financial statement, one to that they reviewed the budget, and then one that to just that they talked about financial finances at the meeting. And then they also check their bylaws, such as how many board members do you need for a quorum? If you don't have any, what are you doing about that? So um, next slide, please. Okay, so this is just another summary. It's in two parts. We do two different things. This isn't new, by the way. One is that all audited financial statements are reviewed and documented in these different categories. So that is ongoing process that happens. When that um, review is done and these ratings are given, they're assigned a risk level. That risk level carries over to the citywide it's a really long name. Citywide Fiscal and Compliance Nonprofit Monitoring and C Capacity Building Program. This is the controller's process. It's been going on for several years, which standardizes the city's financial monitoring process so that, one, the vendors don't have to hear from all of us individually, but that we're all asking the same things and, um, and all aware of the same processes. So. That, um, so actually you can go to the second, next slide please. Um, so with that risk assessment, it rolls into the citywide process. And I really added that slide for a description, but also so you could see all the things that are checked when they go out on that monitoring. We um, have, let's see, I wrote this down. In the last round, which I think is the current round, we had uh, BOCC had 67, or we, we had 67 nonprofit agencies included in the joint fiscal and compliance monitoring, and we were the lead for 27 of them, so the lead is split between the departments. DPH has 10 nonprofits this past time that did not, were not in the controller's pool, and that's because of the size. So. What happens in that, when those 10 aren't included, um, the audited financial statement is still reviewed. And if there's issues, then it just gets brought into, you know, if the risk assessment shows risk, it gets brought into ooh, the controller's pool and the same assessment is done. So it isn't that, the, you know, they're, they're, it's not looked at. So it's still looked at. And if there's an issue, then it goes further. And then they're still part of the monitoring. Um, okay, next slide, please. So this, um, this is the lot, part two. We have established an agency performance and financial stability report. And we are uh, re-implementing, which hasn't been for a while, a monthly contract oversight meeting. This. Uh, performance and stability report, it's kind of like such a no-brainer. I'm not sure why we never did it before, but what it's doing is, right now, if you're a program person, like the, the business owner, you can see there's lots of pieces of information. There's lots of flags, or, but you have to kind of get it and know. And sometimes the contracts have more than one owner inside a contract. So it hasn't been a great um, centralized system to see everything in one place. So this, I think, is actually going to be a great innovation. It's a lot of 
um, work to get it started, but what we did is created this form and talked to a lot of staff to include all the things that we could think of that someone would want to comment on or that would contribute to the picture of an agency. Do they need technical, and in the slide, actually you can go one more slide, thanks. Um, you can see it. What you're seeing in that slide is the front page and those are the flags. Um, and for each one of those items, if you flagged it later down in the report, it's gonna tell you a lot more detail about it. The, um, and then there's just generic information, all the contracts, all the programs. But, so, it's funny that I cannot see, okay. So that um, sometimes if a vendor has asked for funding or a delayed repayment or something like that, cash flow, then you know there's probably an issue. So that's a flag. That's always been sort of out there, not, anyway, it hasn't been centralized that way. So anyway, that's what all of these items are. All of them, if there's a technical assistance plan or a corrective action plan, there's backup. There's a plan that's been developed, there's objectives, there's a timeline, so the deliverables and what the expectations are on a schedule. Um, and so what we've done is we pulled 14, we found 14 agencies kind of that we're considering higher risk from early warning on up. Those are the first 14 that we're doing. <coughs> and then, you. thank you, and then we'll move on to the too big to fail contracts, vendors, and then just keep going. There's probably a hundred of these that we have to do. So that's, um, and then we're gonna reinstate this contract oversight committee meeting which has high level and just people that should know about like Greg, Dr. Colfax will be invited. Um, but anyway, it's, it's reinstituting a meeting that we had regularly that really died on the vine during COVID and kind of died before that. But I think it, it was, it did work. It's just time consuming, right? But it does bring all of it together and we're gonna use these new agency um, documents at the meeting as a point of discussion. So I think, um, I think these are really good innovations and they seem so obvious, but happily we're doing them now. Um, but I still think that we have done a lot of monitoring a lot and I think we're uncovering where there's room for improvement and definitely communication is um, making it easier has been the biggest improvement. So that is all I have. Do you have any questions? Thank you, Ms. Ruggles. Before we go to commissioner questions, we do uh, need to take public comment on this item. Should there be any? Sure. Any up? Oh, there's no public comment in the room. Uh, any folks um, who've received a combination for disability um, would like to raise their hand? Please press star three now. All right. Seeing no hand. Anyone else uh, who would like to provide remote public comment? Please press star three now. Again, star three to raise your hand. I do not see any hands, commissioners. Right. Thank you, Secretary Morowitz. Um, I do have a few quick questions, uh, Ms. Ruggles. First of all, thank you for this presentation. I know that there's been a lot of talk about this, and you're right. When you see something in the press, it's very frustrating, and it's really good to get the story behind it and know all the important work that's being done. Um, you know, 
serving as president, I'm no longer on committees, but when I used to go to the Finance and Planning Committee, it was always really helpful, and thank you for this, to get a little bit of a walkthrough of like examples of how a program works from a client perspective or something like that. In that same vein, looking at either the fiscal stability monitoring or uh, some of the new tools, can you just give a couple examples, not being specific to organizations, just of the kind of flags that come up that might lead to a deeper, deeper examination of an organization or contract? Just anything off the top of your head. Oh, good. Yeah, Ms. Ruggles, please speak really closely to the microphone. So slides, um, it starts on slide 25. Okay. Follow-up remediations to address identified problems. Okay. And so you can see it's organized into typical triggers for a technical assistance. Great. So plan of action, that's the items that go into a program monitoring uh -huh. review. And then there's corrective action or ATAP. So these are, um, so if there's like, see, you know, if their staff turns over a lot, yeah. so, so there's flags like that. Okay. Or if they don't have enough board members, they can't fill their board members. If they're asking for um, funding, uh -huh. if they, if their performance object, if their performance over time isn't getting better, then that's a flag. Okay. And then. It's, this is really tiny print, but it's in that same series. It's okay. a couple pages later. It looks, it's like a flow chart. Okay, um, got it. And so that is kind of a good summary, if you can read it, of like, here's the issue, and then there's decision points. Do we do a technical assistance planning? Do we do a corrective action plan? Corrective action plan is very formal. There's guidelines, and the, the, the controller's office is involved as well. And then um, I added to this under the purple that the box of restarting our contractor oversight committee meetings. But these are the types of flags that we get, um, warnings that we look at. So for members of the public that are watching, there are some very specific things that we look for to ensure that tax dollars are being spent responsibly and effectively. And when we see those things, there are, there are very specific actions that we enter into to ensure that either they come back into compliance or meet the expectations or other action is taken. Right. And then the, the review of the audited financial statements is very detailed and what they're looking and what is being looked at and so that assessment that's done from that is also a big piece of information great and then my, my other question you had mentioned um and i, I want to make sure i understood this right that there are like 14 organizations that kind of fell or contracts that fell into like a particular category i think of needing more monitoring or something just just to understand oh, that a little better and then well, also just the context that we have more than 400 organizations that we contract with, correct? We have um, 450 pro but more than, but individual programs. And so I think, um, I'm sorry about the lack of data, but I'm gonna say there's 125 unique vendors. Huh? Um, not all of the vendors though are nonprofit. Huh? And, and, and so um, for the citywide fiscal and compliance, the, the fiscal part, like the UCs, we're not monitoring them. We're not monitoring hospitals. Okay. And the controller's office has any um, 
vendor that's a million dollars or more, even if they only go with one department. Before you had to have more than one city department, now it's if you're that high. But so of all of our nonprofit contracts that might otherwise be available, 10 of them don't reach any of the threshold. But we don't um, ignore them. We still review the audited financial statement, which is still the indicator that um, drives even how they're going to be reviewed in the uh, controller's really formal monitoring. And so if they are showing risk, they'll still get that level. We'll just bring them up and add them to the process. Great. Great. Thank you for that clarification. Sure. Uh, Commissioner Gerardo. I first want to thank you very much for <coughs> answering my multiple questions, <laughs> um, which you did. And I also appreciate your example that mm -hmm. I had requested that I haven't taken a look at yet. Oh. Um, but I just want to thank you for your responsiveness. <coughs> the May 2nd or whatever, whether it's to you or to Mr. Wagner, with it seems more expanded monitoring in the system that is in place, do you have enough staff? <coughs> is what I guess one of my concerns is, is that you know it, it's more finite work and it's more expanded from where you were since you know COVID is right. Uh, so in the future, you know I just yeah want to make sure that you've got the staff to be able to support the uh, yeah, <laughs> to support you. it. It's just. Well, um, one thing I neglected to do, I want to um, introduce Michelle O'Neill and then there's Nick Hancock and Wasim and Jerna Reyes on the screen who have been on the screen, on the <laughs> remote that have been like a great, great team of the Business Office of Contract Compliance. It's been hard through COVID. They got no favors having me as the acting director because the person that retired did. He had his own caseload of eight, I don't know, it was a lot of contract programs and I, I haven't gone out to do programs. So I think, you know, this does add a lot of work. On the same hand, we're also, finally, um, I think the new director, hopefully, a couple months, and then we have two new staff that are starting Monday and so it's replacing another person that retired. So I think, you know, we'll see how it goes. It's a heavy lift. I hope after, like, we get all these update, you know, data entered that uh, that's the heaviest part. But, yeah, we'll see. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. But I'd, I'd appreciate, you know, just, you know, the continued look since it seems to take so long to hire somebody that... <laughs> Um, maybe think ahead <laughs> for whatever as uh, right. as this uh, process is has been revamped. So thank you. Yeah. Thank and you. in that same vein, too, also, you know, we, we always invite folks to speak with candor about the challenges <laughs> that they may be facing uh, in terms of staffing and the strain that that places both on the existing staff as well as the important work that needs to be done. And Ms. Ruggles, I wanted to acknowledge you, your dual roles at this time as mm -hmm. well. Um, so thank, thank you for that. And we, we also are hopeful that that position gets filled soon. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, C Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you, President Bernal. Uh, and I want to add my thanks uh, to those who have uh, already thanked you and acknowledged uh, your presentation and all the hard work. 
uh, that goes uh, into it. Uh, as, uh, um, I think I've been on the finance and planning or uh, program committee for a couple years now, and it's still uh, yeah. a lot to learn and, and appreciate about what uh, all you do. Uh, I had a couple questions uh, in two different veins. One, uh, just a variation on Commissioner Gerardo's uh, question about the staffing. Um, I, I'm wondering um, what the load is on each individual um, an, uh, analyst, uh, if that is sort of is assigned in a systematic way, and uh, does, does uh, the efficiency rise if there is expertise that's developed in particular types of programs or contracts that might be, uh, um, that you might see as sort of a, uh, a way to, um, until more staff is available and hired, uh, might uh, ease some of the, what I would, I think uh, might be uh, quite a heavy load um, uh, up until then. Yeah. So one, you know, what is, wh how is the work distributed? Uh, is it, and then, you know, uh, are there efficiencies uh, by sort of assigning by expertise? I think the efficiency, there's too few people, like everyone's becoming an expert, but they are sort of dif um, divided. But I'm going to let Michelle O'Neill speak to the how it's assigned. Good evening. Thanks for your comments and your support. I have been um, a compliance manager for six years. Next uh, month will be my seventh year. My anniversary. And so right now, um, as Michelle was talking about our current staffing and um, with her stepping in as the interim director, we have carried this load um, ourselves. And when, when you look at all of the programs the coming soon, um, for us, we've monitored a lot of the agencies over the years. We have several of us go to the substance abuse meetings, the mental health meetings, we get very familiar HIV, so with all of the requirements. And so we may monitor the programs, several programs, several years in a row, but we also like to rotate to get to know um, the other services that are being provided in the community. We are very um, impressed with the level of services that are available. We are doing this and doing our very best to meet these timelines, being short-staffed. And we sit in a room together as a team, as Michelle acknowledged, Jerna, Craig, and our newest addition, Elisa, um, and just go through and see how we're going to monitor these programs. And as Michelle said, we're just doing our best. We're trying to, we have a goal for the timeline and we're doing our best to get there. And we hope when this new staff, we understand when um, new people are hired, it takes a while for them to understand what the role is. And I think there's an assumption that when you monitor a program, it's an easy thing to just look at the contract, look at the invoices, go to the program, you got this checklist. There's so much work that goes into that because we need to verify that information that we put in those reports are accurate. Mm -hmm. And so it takes time. And you know, um, our newest member, Elisa, she comes with a lot of expertise from the substance abuse um, world. And she was like, I didn't realize how much work goes into doing these reports, but we're very proud of what we put in our reports. And so um, it's just 
it's a lot and we know it's a valuable service. So I don't know if I've answered your question. Sorry for the <laughs> rambling, but no, we're doing you. our best to get through them. No, I, I think that, so that that answer was really sort of giving us a good qualitative flavor, you know, of, of how uh, things are working there. And I'm, I'm thinking about as you monitor some of these other programs that are coming online uh, with this centralized process, uh, uh, the teamwork probably uh, makes it easier or at least more uh, creates a more supportive environment. The other question I had, though, was around sort of the programmatic content uh, monitoring. So there's a lot of emphasis and a lot of work here on the some of the more tangible uh, uh, aspects of you know sort of fiscal stability and governance and those kinds of things. One of the things that came up at our uh, finance committee meeting had to do with how do you assure the outcomes of the uh, the programmatic uh, or, or monitor, maybe not as sure, but monitor the outcome. So for instance, with the sugar tax, uh, there are a number of units uh, and services that are provided, but there's also some policy implications uh, in those contracts and the program. H how are those tracked uh, and what, you know, uh, what process do you have internally to, to document that? So we really look to see what the requirements are um, we look to see what objectives um, are um, in, that are posted on the website or listed in the contract. We have lots of discussion with the program at each agency to get a, a better understanding of the services they're actually providing. We look at their objectives, we look at their, their findings, we look at all of their data source to making sure that whatever we put in that contract, we can, there is a, what do you call it? Um, we can document it where we're, where we're gathering that information. So we like to include that data in our report. Did that answer your question? Uh, somewhat, but I think it, it probably uh, it probably goes to how the contracts themselves are actually developed. Just in terms of, for instance, do does a hundred units of service result in a change in behavior? You know, over time. You know that you know that really speaks to what the 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 funding was used for, and I don't know if that that is an objective, for instance, that might come up initially in the contract development uh, or even in the RFP. So those are the kinds of things that we, as I think members of the commission, don't necessarily get. Um, and so it's just it's just one, you know, are they there? How are they monitored? And then how do we get the information about the the effectiveness, you know, of the uh, the funding? For a particular program right so i think that the program owner i'll call the business owner is responsible for setting the objective some of the objectives are come from the funding agency um but i do think and then that f those get developed and then bocc will determine if they can be monitored and then there's the quality management sections like in behavioral health that's um developing the reports, I think um, I can speak a little bit more to behavioral health services and actually right now there's a whole change going on called CalAIM that's going to result in different performance objectives that are trying to get more at, um, at, I always mix up the terminology, but the outcomes of someone getting better. And so it will be changing um, so the outcome objectives are going to be changing somewhat looking at that. But one of the things that I sent to you, or 
it, that Mark will send to you in an email is, because I just wanted you to see it, the quality man, so as an example, there's one objective in an acronym, it's CANS and ANZA, and it's looking at the strengths of the child or the adult, and it's, it's a test, I don't know if it's called a test, an assessment tool that's given at different periods of time to see how they're changing and their strengths are increasing. And so that's one of the performance objectives. Quality management for behavioral health services will give us the individual data so that the objective can be scored. But the thing that I sent in the email is you can actually go to the public DPH website and see where they post it. And they post it quarterly and they post how it's worked, like the results for the whole system. And then it's back, the first page, and then it's backed up by individual programs and by and then they meet and talk about that with the provider so I think there's a lot of work and I would encourage you if on the interest is on the performance objectives that it's probably worth having a meeting that includes the like the quality management staff from the different units to ask those questions because I think they're the ones that are setting the goals um, business office of contract compliance can say you hit it you hit you you know you made the established goal, but whether the person is getting better as a reflection of that objective, I think is it's a system look, and I think the system look will become more from behavioral health in this example that rolls it all the way up. But I think that's where there's a couple pages in the reference documents about performance objectives, but I think. That's a great question, and it's something that the systems of care are looking at right now, and that would probably be a, where you'd want to get that information. That was helpful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. One one of the things that you know, like um, the you know the healthcare industries and and consumer rights advocates are moving into is quality of life. So when we talk about um, these outcomes, you know, like so, I think that you know, like it also would be helpful moving forward to look at how how it's defined. You know, like when when we look at that as quality of life improvement. So yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like how this is going to transform, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and the way that we talk about healthcare is not just about like free of diseases, but instead it's about, you know, autonomy. It's about, you know, like, um, you know, like other, other aspects of social determinants. Yeah. I think through CalAIM and through the quality management and the sections, you'll be able to get a good flavor of that. I'll send one more link. I have to check. I think it's public to anyone, but I'm not positive. Um, but it's you can look online and see all the performance objectives because we post them, and that's how every we reference them in the contract, and then we post them, and then you can see what are the standardized objectives and then what are individualized. throw my, uh, I don't know if it's even two cents worth in, in response to uh, both of these questions, but it is like these are getting in, into kind of the, the cosmic uh, 
questions about government. Um, uh, so, and, and I, I wouldn't pretend that I have the answer. Um, but I would definitely say um, that, you know, Michelle described for each, each program is attempting to set some kind of uh, uh, outcome metric. Um, and there are different, in different parts of the department, there are different uh, environments that we're operating in where in some cases we may have federally uh, imposed quality measures that we are, are forced to use for reimbursement and that may also be good or, or we, we may not be thrilled. Uh, in other cases, there are um, fewer of those and we have a little bit more latitude uh, to define what our, our, our outcome measures are gonna be. But even in those cases, we still have the uh, issue of we have to have something that is measurable in the sense that you just heard a little bit from the, the team here about how are we going to collect and verify and document in, in a way that we can actually um, implement through a contract. Um, so there really is um, nothing easy about it. We've gone through, I know, um, in my, uh, close, close. Oh, I'm not holding close enough. I thought I was doing it. Uh, <laughs> kiss the mic. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Um, in my uh, time here, a, a few cycles of uh, trying to approach this, sometimes through the RFP processes where we, we use large RFPs that go out to define uh, what we're attempting to purchase and, and rethink a, a little bit what those services could look like, which then flows through into the um, contracts. So I think what you, what you all are um, pointing to is something that is a, a huge topic of uh, discussion and um, you know we were happy to try to facilitate uh, some of these answers uh, to it and I know some of this goes back to ongoing the ongoing dynamic of at the budget and finance committee you want this me uh, meta picture but you have one contract in front of you with a few things and it's hard to strike the balance between the two Yes, that was a really helpful clarification. And first of all, I wanted to say this is such an extensive body of work that you've done. And I'm not sure I understood it all, but it, we really, really appreciate that. And it's just a testament to how complex this is and how really stretched your, your team is to be able to check all these boxes. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. Just in thinking about our trying to understand this because we always approve the consent calendar, this slide six I thought was really helpful where you have it divided into the program areas. And I think if, if there were a way that, uh, it, it, it's clear some of this is coming from Cal Ames, some of this is coming from within the department. I think where some of us are confused is that when you go to the county, you know, you get the triangle, you get the true north, everything's lean and there's this structure that you become acclimated to. And this is far less specific and far more diffuse. So I think if, if we understood where the metrics are coming from, which was that, you know, that four box uh, um, slide you also have, and where your parameters are, it would really help as we approve these things to better understand. If there's a site we can go through to in advance, it would be really wonderful because it, it, this is a lot more diffuse and a lot more complex than, than um, just going to the hospital and knowing what the uh, CMS metrics are. <coughs> yeah. 
work on that or work like work it into a standard part of the presentation to um, we always have the program monitoring reports and then we report on we don't usually pass them out we do a summary but we can pass them out if it's you know and it, it you'll see the objectives what they are um, so I think you know we can I think that would be worth another discussion to figure out what would be helpful and if there's couching the information into something um, or bringing a slide so that it's it's organized in a way I'm happy to talk more about how to do that that's helpful well thank you because you know we see we approve contracts like for transitional age youth and it sounds like there's a lot more going on at a higher level that actually integrates them all and doesn't create redundancy where you have different agencies doing the same thing um, but it doesn't it isn't clear to us as we um, look look at the contracts or look at what we get and it, it is incredibly complex so I don't certainly none of us would want to create any extra work for you but if it's off the shelf and mm -hmm. we can un better understand it. We'll, we'll do the legwork because what you're doing is so important and, and so difficult. Yeah. I think you're also kind of in luck because we have about 15 contracts going to the board in the next few months. And in so doing that, that's exactly what we're trying to put together are some system slides to like put the contract in the context of the system. Um, so hopefully we can align all of that because it's the same challenge. Like your challenge isn't unique. It's hard. It's just you're looking at a piece. How does it fit? So that is something that um, that we're thinking about how to do that and what the standards would be. So that could definitely be incorporated um, into future presentations. Oh, thank you. Well, definitely no extra work for us, please. I just had one last question. When you started to winnow it down to 125 vendors, and not all were nonprofit, and then there were these 14 we're watching, how many ended up being, how many total are nonprofit? I'm going to double check this when, like, I have, like, I can eyeball each one, but we think it's like 79, I think. Um, so you were talking about the vendors, 125 vendors. Yeah. And, and then, then some of them were for profit. Which some you of them, and then UC is yeah. the, um, a big vendor, and then hospitals. And uh, so not every single thing falls into the monitoring category. But I'm going to get a better, I just want to, I was collecting numbers, and I got this here and this here, and I just want to make sure that they line up. But we believe that of our nonprofits, 10 of them were too small to fit into the, or didn't fit the category of the fiscal and compliance monitoring. So but with, with your 14 agencies that are in question, what's your denominator? If you get, I mean, hospitals are not for profit too, but when you get rid of those big institutions, what's the denominator? Oh, so the 14, what I did, I'm not sure if I answer, let me answer this and you can tell me if it answers your question. I asked, I said, where do we start? There's a lot of contracts. So I asked the staff, the business office, contract compliance, is there any vendors that you keep seeing the same problem? Let's pull them out and do this really comprehensive document first. And so, or I asked the finance, the fiscal, is there anyone that you've got a high risk in the, in your analysis of their audited financials. So that's how we pulled 
14 of them out. One of them is a vendor that had a, it's new and there was a programmatic question, so it just got stuck in there. Not sure that it's gonna be at the level of, you know, I don't know that it will be anything more than like an early early warning, but anyway, we just highlighted 14 that we wanted to start with to get the comprehensive picture, but I don't know if there's a denominator that's okay. common. Thank you. 14 out of the 126. Uh, okay, thank you. Oh, sorry. Is that the answer? <laughs> Let me just go on. <laughs> Thank you. Commissioner Chow. Yes, I uh, am very uh, uh, impressed with the uh, extensive work that the uh, BOCC does. And uh, as a matter of fact, it uh, was after I sort of scanned what you had sent us from RAMS uh, and, and then also looked at your green charts, uh -huh. there just seems to be uh, an enormous amount of information that we are getting on all these contractors. And, and, and they're probably all very important for each of your areas, I mean, like finance and, and so forth. Uh, and I thought that your last comments were really important and struck me to be something that could be helpful to us, which is the idea of putting all these into some sort of context about where they came from and where they fit and what they are so that then at least from the big jigsaw puzzle that, that we have here in 130 pieces, we know that we're looking at this segment or this segment and, and perhaps I know Mr. Wagner uh, uh, will remember what we did with Epic, right? With, with their multiple contracts and we finally put them into a big wheel and we said they, they were either contracts related to specific IT or software and, and, and here's what it's going to do. And for uh, that uh, wheel, there of course was a limited you know, uh, amount of money that we were talking about spending. Yeah. Maybe we could do something similar for each of larger components of this, uh, mental health or uh, children's services or whatever you were talking about in terms of probably trying to present to the board and put these into yeah. components. Uh, while I, I think we could all uh, do our homework, uh, I'd imagine reading not just RAMS, but all the other 120, it's far more than um, even we would be able to absorb and appreciate. But we would appreciate that the RAMS objective to uh, perhaps have 25% of the people going out and getting a job right. is really where we're looking at. And, and all this data is there. Uh, I think earlier today we talked about the potential that it be perhaps a brief paragraph about what were some of the important outcomes. And then if that was wrapped up into oh, this is all part of substance <coughs> abuse. And, uh, you know, and, and, and therefore, and it also represents 25% of our effort or something. Th that's kind of where I think it would help us in perspective to understand where these contracts sit and that they have been valuable. And as uh, I think Commissioner Chung said, we could celebrate 
for what was coming out. Uh, a good example might be that uh, for uh, since what 2019 or whatever it is, uh, NEMS has been doing uh, the gambling project on the Chinese community. Well, when this contract comes before us now, uh, in these last how many years, the point is, well, how are we doing and what has changed in those years is really part of our question, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of what I think uh, would really uh, help us without it becoming, yeah. you know, a 20-page thing or sending us documents that are very important, very uh, impressive, uh, and needed for management, but, uh, you know, uh, doesn't quite give us the information that we're talking about. So we have 125 <laughs> contracts, but they're vendors, but there's probably 250 contracts and growing. Um, so I think that's a great idea. One thing that we're going to do, this is not an immediate um, fix to get that, because I think what you're saying is an excellent and perfect idea. The problem is right now, we don't have an electronic contract management system. So each of those great ideas is a project to pull it out. And so what we are though designing and going to go out to bid for is a new system. And in that, we'll have a vendor profile, and um, and with that, we'd be able to list the program, list the section where it comes from, list the modality, list. So then it would just be sorting, list the same solicitations. So at some point, I believe that we will have the ability to very easily sort um, information. So it actually wouldn't even be a project when you say, how many contracts do you have? And I say, oh gosh, not sure. Because it's different people have different things. So I think, um, I think you're exactly right. I th and I think that is the goal and the vision. We don't have all the tools to make it super easy, but we're definitely putting information together now that I think will give you some of that. I don't think we'll at this immediate point, get down to the tidiness of the chart that you had from IT, which I, I remember seeing it as was you know it was good. Um, but certainly there'll be something, and we will think about how to uh, um, anchor the contracts into some bigger context that's visual. Um, we just ha we have to talk about what that's going to be, and then do it and then know that in the future, you'll be able to have a lot more robust information easily. Oh no, thank you for your continued effort. Mm -hmm. yes, Commissioner Chung. Yeah, I, I think it's not a question, but uh, more of a comment and, and praise. Please turn your microphone on, Commissioner. This is um, more about a comment and a praise to all the work that you, um, the directors and the entire Department of Public Health have been doing. I think that <coughs> that's a story that isn't tell isn't told very well uh, outside. You know, because DPH has always been a thought leader and you know a pioneer in like new modalities and you know cutting edge um, services. You know, like the best example that I could give was when we were on the care councils when we first came up with the whole idea of um, 
what is it called? Center of Excellence, you know, and so that that model now became, you know, the the standard model of care for um, for the entire, you know, care systems, and you know, and now we start talking about um, whole person care. It all came from the work that we do, and so I think that you know the contract department is the weather forecast and also the dashboard to really help us, you know, look at like where we can improve and where um, we can actually reward, you know, good collaborations amongst um, service providers. So it's a tough job because like you said, you know, there's a lot to look at, but I think that ultimately, hopefully, you know, like you will be able to see that impact as well. Thank you. Dr. Colfax. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. Uh, thank you. And I just uh, want to go back to one of the areas of, of discussion about staffing. And, and just to be really candid, um, since that was asked for, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that given given where we are three years after almost exactly the first case of COVID was reported in San Francisco, it's important to really acknowledge just how disruptive that period of time was and that the department, including in non-clinical areas such as contracts. Sorry, <laughs> um, I mean, it was very disruptive and we still have a lot of work uh, to do as, as Michelle is pointing out to, to move forward. But, but I don't wanna underestimate um, the incredible challenges that the pandemic put upon this team and our providers and you'll recall that through the emergency declaration and other mechanisms, um, there were allowances that were that were made. But we just—it's uh, not as though, unlike a public health order, we can't turn it on and off that that quickly. And then I think the other piece is, as part of the pandemic, it was endemic before the pandemic. But even, and now, with so many other complicating factors, hiring continues to be a, a, a huge issue. And the the, the positive part, part of this is that we have some. Um, positions that have been vacant for a while that we're optimistic that will be filled in the next couple of months. But as in other parts of the department, um, the, the, this, the business office, the contracts office remains uh, relatively short staffed. And as I think the commissioners know, getting the right people with the qualities and skill sets needed, it's very competitive out there right now. So just to, to you know, appreciate the work, appreciate the vision, appreciate the excellence and, and the comments and also making sure that we're, we're, we're level steady in terms of the, the challenges that also lie ahead. I'm optimistic we'll get there, but I just wanted to make sure that um, the commission heard, heard the, uh, the, the additional parts of, of what, what, what are being challenged here and just reinforce um, what, what's already been said about some of those challenges. And obviously the opportunities that Michelle's presented are, are incredible and I think we will realize them. It's just going to uh, take longer uh, than, than I think any of us want, including because of, of the pandemic and the other pieces that I just mentioned. So thank you. Thank you for pointing that out, Director Colfax, and thank you for your candor as well. And we'll continue to dive into issues of hiring and the amount of time that it, uh, that it takes to fill a position. Um, seeing no other questions or comments, thank you, Michelle, for your presentation. Thank you so much. And to your colleague, Michelle, happy anniversary or DPH anniversary uh, in advance. So we, uh, we're happy to have you all here. And we'll move on to our next item, which is 
the Finance and Planning Committee update. Uh, we have the Chair, Commissioner uh, Chung. Please turn on your microphone, Commissioner. The, the Finance and Planning Committee um, met um, before the Commission meetings and we um, reviewed um, uh, the March contract reports and, f um, and four new contracts, I believe. Yep, four, four contracts, five contracts. Um, and within the contract reports is actually three three contracts that added, you know, like um, added more years to the contract terms. And, um, and for, for the new contracts, um, it, it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, one of the, the contract that we have a little bit of concern was a contract that was like retroactive to July 1st, 2021. Um, and you know, and we were trying to figure out whether they have been paid, like um, when before this contract was approved by the city attorney's office recently. Um, so we we're hoping that you know we're not doing business without paying people, especially mm -hmm. um, when they're doing meaningful work as a nonprofit organization. So you know, and and we had a discussions about that. Um, so that's that's the. Yeah, that's the crux of, of the meeting. Thank you. Well, uh, excuse me, Commissioner. Also, you heard about the quarterly uh, report, the DPH oh, yes. second quarterly report. <laughs> yes, I, I should not forget about that because we keep postponing Ms. Louis from pre presenting that to us. So we finally get to um, hear about um, the, the second quarter report. And, um, and I think that uh, some of the, the the numbers, you know, the deficit numbers were expected because of what's going on right now, um, and uh, especially with um, Laguna Honda, you know, and the re reductions of services. Um, so yeah, so everything looks on on track. Thank you, Commissioner Chung. Do you have any public comment on this item? Folks on the line, we're on uh, item seven. If you have public comment for this item, please press star three. Star three. All right, no public comment, commissioners. All right, and if we have no com comment from commissioners, we can move on to the associated item, which is the consent calendar. Did you? I move to uh, adopt the uh, consent calendar. Consent calendar, there we go. Uh, is there a second? All right, public comment. Folks on the line, we're on item eight, the consent calendar. Please press star three if you'd like to raise your hand to be acknowledged for public comment on this item. No hands, commissioners. All right, uh, all those in favor of approving the consent calendar, please say aye. 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 Opposed? All right, consent calendar is approved. Our next item is other business. Commissioners, do you have any other business? All right, any public comment? Folks on the line, we're on item nine, other business. Please press star three if you'd like to raise your hand to be acknowledged. Star three. No hands. All right, our next item is the Joint Conference Committee and other committee reports. We'll hear a summary of the February 28th ZSFG JCC meeting. Uh, Commissioner Chow. Yes, thank you. And, and thank you for your confidence in approving our uh, uh, consent item. Uh, perhaps in the future, we should probably present the uh, 
uh, rationale ahead of time uh, for the benefit of the commissioners. But in any case, as you approve the anatomic pathology rules and uh, uh, regulations, we had uh, reviewed uh, that and the um, medical staff report that related to this um, small but mighty department mm -hmm. and uh, had recommended to you and thank you for your uh, support of the uh, uh, consent calendar. Uh, we also then, uh, we had also uh, done our usual regulatory affairs report. Uh, we've uh, heard the CEO report. We worked uh, on the hiring and vacancy reports and understand the challenges that the department continues to face, but that there seems to be some hope in uh, being able to bring more staffing on uh, staffing continues to be uh, a real challenge in the emergency room department, for example, mm -hmm. which has uh, been uh, sort of a chronic problem. Uh, we also heard a wonderful presentation called Harmonizing and Synergizing Access and Flow Across the ZSFG Campus, which is really an important comprehensive strategic planning update and will uh, have a great impact upon how uh, leadership will be able to uh, find a, um, a, a means to, in order to continue to address uh, um, uh, health disparities and inequities. Uh, likewise, we also address the issues of the diversion rates and, staff, and, and as I said, staff vacancies. And on the diversion rates at the hospital, they did achieve a, um, uh, a modest uh, decrease and got uh, below their benchmark uh, last month at 44%. Uh, and uh, we'll continue to work on that as an objective and, and there's a coordination with the EMS people and so forth about that. So in our uh, closed session, we did approve the credentials report and the PIPS minutes report. That is uh, my report. And thank you, uh, Commissioner Chow, for pointing out the consent calendar. I had not recalled that it included an item that was not from the Finance and Planning Committee. Would you like to offer the rationale for that, or is there a proposal to pull that out of the consent calendar and reconsider? Oh, no, separately? no, no. I, I, I think what we might do in the future, if, if uh, possible, is to explain mm -hmm. a consent calendar item mm -hmm prior to accepting the consent calendar. Uh, agreed, and again, the, uh, that's on me for not, re not remembering that there was an item that was outside of the previous discussion from the Finance and Planning Committee. Um, all right, thank you. Uh, our next item is other... Oh, excuse er, me, yeah. I'm sorry, I set to ask for public comment on that one. Oh, thank you. Sure, um, item 10, um, uh, folks online, if you'd like to make comment on the item 10, again, the JCC report, please let us know by pressing star three. Just change the order. Okay, no hands, commissioners. All right, our next item is consideration of adjournment. Uh, commissioners, do you have a motion to adjourn? So moved. Public comment? Okay, great. Uh, all those in favor, say aye. 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 All those opposed? All right, we are adjourned. Oh, I changed my mind. Okay. <laughs> I